listening to the CWCCS podcast with Pastor Al Pittman in our series titled Setting Things in Order. It's based on the book of Titus, and we pick up today in chapter 1 as Pastor Al shares the text that defines the various leadership roles in the church. Let's go now to today's message. So good to be back. Thank you for your prayers for Norma and I, and, and amen. Thank you. And, uh, you know, going through this whole eye surgery thing and then going in for another surgery, and my precious wife has been so patient with me because you know how us guys get when we get sick or something, right? <laughs> you know. And, <laughs> of course, she kind of got back at me one time. We went to the store, and I told her, I'll just sit here in the car. And she said, okay, but don't touch anything. <laughs> oh, that's it. Treat me like a little kid, you know. No, she was just joking. But, you know, just, uh, you know, I just thank God for my bride. I really do. She's been very patient, driving me all over. I, this is the second day I've driven my car. I feel like a teenager with a new driver's license or something. And uh, I haven't driven my car since the 1st of July. So, anyway, God is good. I is healing. Jesus is Lord. Amen. That's all we know. Amen. Well, we're here in the book of Titus, and uh, the theme through the book of Titus, as I mentioned before many weeks ago, but uh, is setting things in order. Setting things in order. The first thing we need to do to set things in order is we need to be, uh, we need to have a common faith. We talked about common faith uh, in our last message from the book of Titus, and now we're going to be addressing today church leadership. Uh, we'll be looking at, of course, Titus chapter 1, verses 4 to verse 9. I know it may say 14 on the screen, but uh, this is going to be a two-part message. This is part one today. We know how important leadership is. We saw the tragic events surrounding our nation's exit from Afghanistan, and we know that leadership is really important. And Paul, understanding this, commissions and actually commands Titus to appoint qualified leaders within the church on the island of Crete. In verse 4, if you will read along with me, the latter part of verse 4, Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things at, or, that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. To set things in order, Paul is commanding, is starting really at the top. <laughs> well, it depends on, you know, your view of things. And Matt pastors to be a servant in the congregation, you, more, you could say he's starting at the bottom. But he's starting with the leadership, addressing that and commands Titus, to appoint leaders in the churches there uh, on the island of Crete. He begins, or actually concludes his introduction to the letter by saying, greeting Titus with everlasting grace, or everlasting grace, mercy, and peace, which are attributes of our faith. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. It's important for us to just park here for just a second, just to point out the fact that that this grace, mercy, and peace, he's speaking about the eternal grace, mercy, and peace, attributes of our faith in Jesus Christ. We have grace, we have mercy and peace. Praise God, amen. And it's everlasting. 
And, uh, you know, we sit looking at the world today and praying for our nation and all, but the entire world, people are looking for those three things today. Grace, mercy, and peace. But it cannot be found. It cannot be attained through politics or man-made uh, peace accords or wokeism or, or uh, economic prosperity. You can't find this grace, mercy, and peace. It can only come through the Father, the architect of our salvation, and the Son, the mediator of our salvation. Amen? So he sets kind of, again, the foundations and grace, mercy, and peace belongs to us in Jesus Christ. The particular leadership role that Paul is addressing here within our text is that of elder, leader in the church, elder. Uh, I think this message is important. I know some of you say, well, this is a message just for pastors. I, I don't need this, but we really do. I think it's an important message for the church because here's the deal. Paul reveals to us the qualifications, if you will, of an elder. And that's so important that we, we know for ourselves in the church so that we're able to identify imposters, imposters when we see them. Amen. And a lot of people don't recognize, they just think a, 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 a man stands on a platform, he has a Bible in his hand, he talks loud, or he has a little charisma, you know, uh, he's automatically a pastor. No. Paul lays out the qualifications here uh, within our text. I was um, reading Many years ago, about a, a church happened to be in Africa. There's a lot of deceivers and imposters in America as well. But this happened to be in Africa. And this pastor it, it was, had directed his people, you know, uh, to eat grass. I'm not talking about marijuana. <laughs> but to actually go out in the front of the church, because God told him to, to tell the congregation, because they were sheep, to go out and eat the grass. And the people did. It just makes you wonder. We look at that and we go, how can somebody be so naive or so stupid? <laughs> but if you're not in the word and you've got an imposter in the pulpit, anything can happen. And so this message is really important for you, whether you're, I'm your pastor or whether you go to another church or you leave here. A lot of times we go to move places. We're trying to find a good church to go to. Make sure your pastor, that pastor meets these qualifications. Amen. So that you're not deceived. Acts chapter 20, Paul warned, he said, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So true. Savage wolves, deceivers, imposters will come in to fleece the flock of God, the people of God. And if you don't know the word, they will, you know, he will be able to carry out his agenda. A true leader of the church protects the church, protects the sheep, rather than pillages, uses the sheep for his own gain. The office of elder, pastor, uh, or bishop can be used interchangeably. Uh, They're all one in the same office. Uh, Some definitions, pastor, the Latin word from the Latin word, pastor, and it means shepherd. Comes from the Latin word, pasire. And it means to lead, to pasture, and to cause to eat. And I, I love that because what did Jesus tell Peter? Feed my sheep. What do, you, what, do you, what do you feed them? You feed them the word of God. Feed my sheep. And then the word elder, of course, the definition there is from the Greek word uh, presbyteros, excuse me, which means a senior or a presbyter. And then the word bishop, of course, from the Greek word episkopos, it means superintendent. Or overseer. Pastors are, in essence, under shepherds 
of the chief shepherd. Who is the chief shepherd? Jesus. Peter, who was commissioned to feed the sheep. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, shepherd the flock of God, speaking to pastors, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not with an attitude, I got to go out here and talk to them people. I got to preach this morning, you know. Not with compulsion, but with, but willingly. I always tell young pastors, you know, you know, to guard their hearts because, you know, when you start in a church, you know, a lot of times, you know, it's got this, you know, the, you, you will experience, I guarantee you, <laughs> uh, what Jesus experienced on the Passion Week because you'll come in and they'll be like, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And a week later, they'll want to crucify you. And you have to not let your heart get bitter. And, uh, you know, when we first came here to this church, we had around 80 people. And we, you know, I came in and, of course, you know, it was, you know, blessed to you who comes in the name of the Lord. Then about a week later, crucified. And, uh, you know, I started to get a little upset and, you know, about things people were saying or whatever. And some of that angst was leaking into my points and my message, you know. <laughs> and God rebuked me. He said, love them or resign. Serve willingly, not by compulsion. And I fell in love with that little flock we had, 80 people. And God has done the rest down through the years. Glory to his name. Amen. Do it willingly. You are an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. Not for dishonest gain, it goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 5, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you like some tyrant, but being an example to them, to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, who you will answer to, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Amen. Praise the Lord. The pastor serves in partnership with God for the edification of the church to fill up that which is lacking. That word lacking in our text is an interesting word. It's the Greek word lipo. It means to be passive, to leave destitute, to be absent. I don't know if it's where we get our, that term liposuction. Amen. <laughs> lacking. Amen. Lipo. Amen. That's what it says. So, you know, but it's interesting. Fill up that which is lacking. In our text here, what I want to share with you today is three aspects. Actually, I'm going to share two of the three, but there are three aspects of the pastoral ministry which are essential for a true, to a true pastoral ministry. Call. Someone says, I'm called to be a pastor. Well, here's three things that are necessary. You must be appointed, you must be accountable, and you must have authority. Those three things. Today we're going to talk about the appointment and the accountability. And next week, part two, we'll talk more about a pastor's authority. The pastor must be appointed. Let me say that the pastoral call is not a career choice. Oh, you know, I kind of looked around, you know, business degree, whatever, manager, doctor, whatever. But, hey, I like that pastor thing. 
you only work once a week. <laughs> Rest of the time you can play golf or whatever, just come in and talk for 20 minutes maybe. No. It's not a career choice. In fact, it chooses you. A preacher is not what I do, it's who I am. Paul the Apostle said it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful putting me in the ministry. Now, how did Jesus count Paul faithful? When Jesus called Paul, do you know what he was doing? He was killing and imprisoning Christians. But Jesus called him faithful. Just tells me something about the, 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 the power of God. That God chooses us. He declared Paul to be faithful. Was Paul being faithful? No, he wasn't even interested in following Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, I choose you. It's the same thing with you and, and me, with, with us. God chose you. Stop picking on yourself, in his eyes, you are a child of God. And don't ever forget it. God is able to see things in you that you cannot see. God's able to see things in other people that you can't see. And he declared Paul to be faithful. Just as he, the angel in Judges chapter 6 showed up while Gideon was hiding out, threshing the wheat, and showed up, the angel showed up and said, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. He was a coward. But what it tells me is what God declares about you is more important than what you think and what other people say about you. <laughs> thou mighty man of valor. Wow. So it was God who said, I declared you faithful. I declared you worthy. You put him in the ministry. God qualifies the unqualified for his glory. First Corinthians chapter one tells us that. But there it says God chooses the foolish and the weak things. He chooses those things that are despised, those things that are not. That he alone might receive the glory. The Bible tells us that God has placed his glory in earthen vessels. I like to say crackpots. <laughs> so that the excellency of the power may be of him and not of us. When people come to Calvary Worship Center, a church that's grown from 80 people to what it is now, you know, they know that excellency of the powers of God is not of Al Pittman. It's God who's done the work. <laughs> I remember some time ago, a lady came to the church, heard me on the radio, and after the service, she decided to come down, and she told me, she said, well, I heard you on the radio, and, you know, didn't know what you looked like or anything, but now that I've come down here and I've seen you, you know, I'm underwhelmed. (laughs) (laughs) And in my mind... I looked at her and said, baby, you ain't no hot stuff either. <laughs> That's what I said in my mind. I didn't, didn't I? God corrected my spirit. <laughs> but then 
eventually went on to say, but it's so great because God is showing me that it's not, it's not the person, the vessel, that it's, it's the Lord. I said, yeah, you got it. That's awesome. Thanks for insulting me. <laughs> when Samuel went to anoint the king of Israel, to anoint David, he didn't know it was David. He just went to Jesse. Jesse had a bunch of sons. Jesse was the father of David and went to Jesse's household. And he said, hey, the Lord sent me here to anoint one of your sons to be king. And he brought out the first son and he was a stud. Oh, Samuel was like, oh, that's the, that's the king. Woo. And the Lord said, that's not him. He went to all these sons of Jesse and the Lord said, no, no, no. Samuel, out of frustration, said, Jesse, you have any more sons? And this is the funny part to me. Jesse had to stop and think, hmm, uh. <laughs> Baby, we had, we had another one around here. Oh, David. Out doing the lowliest job in the family, watching the sheep. Bring that young teenager in here. And David came in, walked in. And the Lord said to Samuel, the prophet, anoint him. And then reminded Samuel, men judge by the outward things. God judges the heart. Amen. God judges the heart. God had anointed David to be king. So Titus's task here is really important because he is not just to appoint somebody that looks good or he thinks he'd do the job. He had also recognized the anointing in their life. Amen. This is the command that Paul had given to him to appoint those whom God had anointed. Amen. In verse 6, excuse me, Paul gives five basic requirements for pastors. He's basically telling Titus, this is where you start when you're looking for those who are anointed to God, these are five basic qualities. You kind of start with, with these. And we see here in verse 6 where, when Paul declares, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. This is the guy you want to look for. It must have these qualities. If a man is blameless, that word blameless, what does it mean in Greek? It means unaccused without wrongdoing. A pastor is not called to be perfect, but blameless. There's a lot of times we want to create a pastor in our own image. We want people to be, the pastor to be what I'm not. That's not how it works. A pastor is not perfect, but he's blameless. No accusations stick to him because people are always blaming the pastor. A lot of times. Some months ago, a lady was upset with me because I didn't, Make it a mandate for people to wear masks in the congregation. I figure, you know, you're grown, you're adult. If you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. Ain't nothing wrong with wearing a mask. But I'm not going to make it a mandate and stop people at the door. Hey, I'm not going to do that. She got upset. She contacted the Gazette paper. And, uh, wrote, and the Gazette called us. We kind of explained to them you know, our position. And, and uh, they went on with the, the story anyway. And basically, the gist of the story was, story was Pastor Al was shaming people and telling people that if they, if they, if they don't come to church, you know, uh, they're going to go to hell. 
I thought, hmm, I've never preached that. <laughs> but if it'll pack them in. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it was true. It was, it, it was, it was uh, not true. It was, it, was, it was false. It was a lie. And all the first reaction was, I want to write an op-ed. I'm going to say, no, the Lord is my defense, my shield. God said, be quiet. He said, let your fruit speak for you. I didn't know what that meant until people started calling the church saying, hey, pastor, I saw this, this article. Would you mind if I write an op-ed? Several of you wrote in the fruit of this ministry. Amen. Amen. I thank God for it. And as a result, because the Lord is my defense, you know, it never grew legs. It never went anywhere. You know. A pastor is to be blameless. I was blameless in the matter that I was being accused. The second thing is that a pastor must be the husband of one wife. Do I need to elaborate on that? <laughs> he must be the husband of one wife. Now, someone asked me a great question in the last service. said, well, does that mean that a pastor can't, uh, can't be a pastor unless he has a wife? I said, no, he can be a pastor and not be married. It just means that when he gets married, only get one. Amen. Makes sense. You can be. The, you have to be the husband of, or you should be the husband of one wife. Amen. Not a little something, something on the side. Amen. <laughs> Amen. We'll move on. The third requirement is he must have faithful children. This is. I'm spending a little time here because that phrase, faithful children, it does not mean perfect children. It means trustworthy children, children subject to the pastor's leadership in the home. And the pastor should be leading according to the word of God. A lot of people, well-meaning people, again, try to fashion a pastor in their own image. And even beyond that, try to fashion the pastor's family in their own image. And to put unrealistic expectations on the pastor in his household. One article I read uh, the other day said that 80% of pastors believe that the ministry has, has uh, negatively affected their families, close quote. 80%. And I understand that statistic because a, a lot of pastors try to live up to other people's expectations. You won't be around long if you do. I think Focus on the Family put out an uh, article some time ago that 1,500 churches close their doors every month around the country. You must be called to this. <laughs> and you can't enter into the ministry trying to keep everybody happy. You won't last. You'll be frustrated. It's the sad thing about that 80% statistic is that it really impacts the, the pastor's kids. PKs, they call them, preacher's kids, have been known to quickly abandon the faith after they've gone off to college or gotten old enough to leave home because of the pressure people put upon them in the ministry, wanting them to be perfect. Now, the Bible does say in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, that if a man cannot rule his own household, how can he take care of the house of God? Amen. That's so true. 
But his household, if he's ruling, the, the pastor should be doing is, is ruling his household. What does it mean to rule your own household? That all your, your, your wife is perfect, your, your kids are perfect? No, it means that his house is in subjection to the word of God. And because your house is in subjection to the word of God, sometimes there can be issues in the family, especially if you have teenagers. It's been said, if perfect children is required for pastoral ministry, then God would have to resign. Are you not children of God? Are we perfect? No. But God's house has been established by his word and maintained by his word, and so it is with the pastor. And we as his children, we might rebel and do all the stuff we want, but we must be subject to his word. Amen? So the pastor's house is not perfect, neither is the church perfect. But it is subject to the word of God. The fourth requirement as we move on, Qualification, basic requirement for the pastor is that he must not be a person of dissipation. That word dissipation simply means drunkenness and sexually sexual debauchery. Amen. Don't need to elaborate, I don't think. And the last basic requirement is he is not, the fifth thing, insubordinate. He's not unruly, unteachable, or proud. God resists the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. Amen. So we move on from the appointment to the second aspect, if you will, of a pastoral call. And that is accountability. He must be accountable. So verse 7, when Paul goes on to say, For a bishop, pastor, elder, must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just holy, uh, just holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able to able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Amen. Paul lists here three areas in which the pastor must be blameless or must be accountable. He use that word accountable. The first one is stewardship. He is to be blameless over the functionality and the finances of the church. Every year we do a, a financial uh, review by an outside agency, and we've always passed with an A+. And so there must be integrity in the finance, and integrity also in the functionality of the ministry. We're not a perfect church, but we always strive to do ministry with excellence. And so a pastor uh, must be a good steward over the things of the church. He also, secondly, must be uh, accountable in the area not only of stewardship, but of his conduct. And in regard to conduct, Paul provides what I call five knots and seven gots. Five knots, seven gots. 
Well, isn't that profound? Amen. But there are five things that he should not do. He should not be self-willed. He should not be quick-tempered. He should not be given to wine, that is, drinking wine in excess. He should not be violent. He should not be greedy for money. And a lot of times we see these things displayed by so-called pastors late at night, after midnight on TV asking for your money. Be careful. Greedy for money. But what he should have, what he's got to have, seven things, he needs to be um, hospitable, given the hospitality. He should be a lover of what is good, sober-minded, a mind at peace with God, just, caring about that which is just in the eyes of God, holy. What does it mean? I mean, holy is like God or, you know, oh, you know, no. To be holy, Hebrews chapter 12 says, God disciplines those that he loves so that we might partake with him in his holiness. That's interesting. What does that word holiness mean? I mean, I looked it up. It means God's character, God's nature. God doesn't want you to just know about him. He wants you to be a part of him. He wants you to, to hate the things that he hates and love the things that he loves. He wants us to be a partaker of his nature. And so the pastor needs to be a partaker of the nature of God. He needs to be holy. And he needs to be self-controlled. And then holding fast to the faithful word. Amen. His character matters. His conduct matters. I know what politicians, they say character doesn't matter. It matters with God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 says, Remember those who rule over you, who have, speaking of pastors, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. In other words, if he's preaching one thing, but he's living another thing, then, you know, don't follow him. But follow those whose faith follow. And again, not somebody who's perfect, but someone who believes in what they're preaching, whose faith follows his message. Character matters. The third area, and I just mentioned it in those, those seven gots, but the third area that I want to mention of, of accountability is the word of God. And this is so important because there's a lot that's being preached from the pulpits of America today that is not the word of God. And I hear people tell me this. I think, man, I need to get out more. But I have people come, not all the time, but have from time to time said, thank you for preaching the word. I'm going, well, what else am I going to do? <laughs> Tap dance? I mean, what am I going to, you know, entertain people? Hey, you know. Thank you for teaching the word. Just going through the word. Tell us what the word says. You know, they, well, you know the church we go to, they, they don't do that. I'm like, what? What is he doing? The under-shepherd, the, the, the pastor, the bishop, the elder must hold fast to the word. The third thing, accountable in the area of holding fast to the word, to the word of God. Hold fast to the word. That phrase, hold fast, in verse 9, it's so important because if, if a pastor doesn't hold fast, he will not last. He will soon begin to preach and to operate in the wisdom of this world and that which is 
so-called knowledge. He'll become wrapped around the axle of the issues of his day at the expense of the word of God. And his message will be on social issues and all of this rather than on the Savior. Hold fast to the word that you've been taught. You want to be relevant or relevant in this age and pastors trying to be relevant or trying to be cool and, you know. I know years ago at a pastor's conference, a guy was rebuking guys. With, you know, you're trying to be cool and all these pastors were wearing skinny jeans. Now I'm skinny, so I wear jeans are just skinny jeans. Amen. <laughs> but some pastors, you know, big old belly hanging out, you know, got skinny jeans on. Dude, you're 50. Amen. Trying to be relevant. You want to be relevant? Teach the word. Teach the word of God. (laughs) The Greek word for holding fast is very interesting. It is the Greek word antecho. Antecho. You got to say for the C-H in Greek. Amen. Don't try it now. You might spit on the person next to you. But it means, listen to this, to hold before or against, against the onslaught of wickedness in the world, to hold back the influence of the devil, to withstand the social norm, godless social norms of our day, and to endure. How can we endure if we will not hold fast to the word of God? Amen? How can this congregation continue, endure, if it's not holding fast to the word of God? I'm so blessed that we have pastors on staff and my son and others who teach the word when I'm not here. Because it is what will keep this congregation long after I'm gone. Amen. You will be able to endure. Thus, I believe that the greatest weapon we can deploy against the wickedness of our day is the word of God. It's the greatest weapon. It is not new legislation, and I'm for new legislation or whatever, but the word of God is what the church ought to be proclaiming. The church is the last bastion. It's the last uh, uh, hill that the world desires to conquer. They want to shut our mouths. Why? Because they don't want to hear the word of God. Because it exposes the wickedness of our day. And it promotes righteousness. And it is righteousness that exalts the nation. But the world doesn't want to hear that. But we're going to preach it anyway. Hold fast to the word. Amen. Apart from the word of God, a pastor cannot be a good watchman on the wall. Ezekiel chapter 3 verses 17 and 19, God rebuked the priest in that day in the Old Testament because they were not good watchmen on the wall. They had abandoned their post. They would not warn the people about the impending judgment that was coming. They were taking their ease. They were A-W-O-L, you know, away without leave. (laughs) And the Lord said, because you've been unfaithful as a watchman on the wall, their blood will be on your hands. Every pastor in America needs to hear that. If you don't preach the whole counsel of God's word, their blood will be on your hands. And God, the chief shepherd, will 
require an accounting. He can't be a good watchman on the wall. He cannot be a good spiritual dietitian. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 23, the Bible says, And they shall, the Lord says, speaking of those priests and, and those who should shepherd his people, and they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. There are believers who don't even know, you know, uh, uh, what's clean and unclean. They bring things into the church, you know, the ideologies and, and philosophies of this world and of this day into the house of God. And when the pastor says it's wrong and he calls a sin, they're offended. And it's because they don't know the word, what is clean and what is unclean. And so we're going to keep preaching the word so that you can discern what is clean and unclean in this world. They embrace what's socially acceptable in our day. They're part of the cancel culture. And they won't speak the truth. And, and you know, if you say something about that, Pastor, you know, you don't, Pastor, don't say that. You might offend somebody. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. Did you hear me? He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to jack folks up. <laughs> Amen. He came to bring a sword so that people will know the difference between darkness and light. That their souls might be saved. And the pastor needs to preach the whole council so that the people can know the difference between that which is clean and unclean. So important. And the pastor also needs to hold fast to the word. Why? Because it's sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. In verse 9, he says, this sound doctrine, you're able by sound. If you hold fast to the word, then you're able by sound doctrine to uh, exhort and to convict those who contradict. That word exhort, uh, it means to comfort people, to encourage them and all. And the word convict it means to convince, to rebuke, or to reprove, or to reprimand. Not in the authority, not in the pastor's authority, but in the authority of the word. And we'll talk more about authority next week. But that word sound, sound doctrine, sound, healthy, whole. Doctrine, instructions. Instruction in what? In the word of God. The pastor doesn't convict people. I might add, the Holy Spirit does. But when you share the word of God, the Holy Spirit is unleashed on people. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is sent into the world to convict men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Amen. These things are the qualifications and the attributes, or uh, um, if you will, of the pastoral office that Paul is giving uh, us here. Now, next week, again, this is, this is part... Um, one, we're going to go to part two. We're going to talk about the authority. The authority uh, of the pastoral call. And we all have authority, amen? We have authority in Jesus' name. Every believer, authority over the enemy. Well, the pastor has authority in the church. Not tyrannical authority, but loving authority to edify and build the church up, amen? We'll talk about that some more next week. But in conclusion, to set things in order begins with leadership. 
God always starts with the leadership. A mist, as the saying goes, in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. That's why he starts with leadership. If the pastor don't know what he's talking about, how can you expect the people to know what's right and what's wrong? Amen. So I love the word of God. Because the word of God basically supports the word of God. It confirms the word of God. And the things I share with you, my, 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 my heart's desire is to make sure that it's backed up by God's word. It's not man-made philosophy, but it comes from the word of God. And I love teaching through the word because I, I, it keeps me off of my soapboxes. I love topical messages. I, I love to teach topical messages on different things. And, and that's, we do that here from time to time. But I love going through the Bible, line upon line, precept upon precept, here little, there little, the Lord said he would feed his people. And that's what we do. That's why we go through the text like this, like, you know. It keeps me off my soapbox, you know, because, you know, it's easy. Some of these pastors get an attitude about something, you know, and I want to preach about people not coming to church. You know, (laughs) start slamming people and all this, you know. I got to be careful, you know, that we go through the word of God, not going through my, you know, pet peeves. (laughs) But what does the Lord say? Amen. So God starts in the pulpit. He starts with, his, with the leadership that they would be on point, on message, holding fast to the word of God. At the airport, those guys who direct planes in, I wanted to find out what the term was for those people who direct planes. And uh, they're called marshalers. Now, I had a guy come up to me after the last service. says, they call them ramp rats. And I'm not calling them a ramp rat. <laughs> You know, guys, but, but they're called marshalers, especially for those in the military, those who are landing planes and all. And, um, but a marshaler, it's interesting, the definition for a marshaler. The main task of a marshalers or of marshalers is to stand in a prominent area and to not endanger the aircraft. And I thought pastors are marshalers, <laughs> directing the plane, the church, Safely to the gate, amen, to Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. Our job is not to direct people to us. I'm so glad that when I'm not here, that again, the word continues to go out. Because this will never be a personality worship church. Amen? We're not here to worship the personality. We're here to worship the Savior. Amen? So indeed, the pastor's job, every believer's job, is to point people to the good shepherd. We may be under shepherds, but he's the good shepherd. Amen. He alone is our daily sustenance and our future hope. The reason I say that is because a lot of times you find folks who've been offended by a pastor or hurt by somebody in the church. They go, I don't go to church anymore. Yeah, but have you done what? Pontius Pilate did. Have you considered Jesus? And when you consider him, you find no fault in this man. You find no fault in him. You can find fault in Pastor Al. You can find fault in any church you go to, you find fault. But your eyes ought to be on Jesus. Not the under-shepherd, the good shepherd. On Jesus Christ. 
He's the one who sustains us. I love what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He says, I am the door, or another translation said, I am the gate. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastor. I like that. He's speaking in the terms of that day, which they, the shepherds understood. The, 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 the pen where they would pin the sheep up at night, you know, had one door. In and out. You couldn't go in any other way. And you go in and out. They would, he, the shepherd would lead the sheep out to, to graze, to, to eat. And then at night, of course, bring them back into the fold. But Jesus is saying, I'm the door. You, you have to come through me. And he goes on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When we were in Israel and we went to the shepherd fields uh, in Bethlehem where David, you know, looked over the sheep. And when, as, a, as a young boy, as a young man, and the gentleman was explaining to us, our, one, our, our guide, and that, look at this field. Because you know, when you think of you know, the, the shepherd fields, you think of rolling green hills like in England or something, right? And not so. In Jerusalem, there's a little plot of grass and a bunch of rocks, a plot of grass, a bunch of rocks. But the shepherd leads the sheep out, the sheep out to the grass because the shepherd knows where the good grass is. And so Jesus, on a daily basis, wants to lead us out. And then he leads us back in. He knows, as David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because my Lord knows what will sustain me. He knows where the grass is. He leads me beside still waters. Amen. The shepherd knows, the good shepherd knows where the water is. He knows where you can be refreshed and what refreshes your soul. You see the picture there? So Jesus is a good shepherd on a daily basis, but he's also a good shepherd when it comes to our everlasting hope. I want to read, as we close here, um, what Jesus said about himself being the good shepherd in John chapter 14. In verse 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Amen. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. That's you and me. And if I go away and prepare a place, here's his promise, a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Again, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As I thought about that, it really blessed my soul. Because it's like you, when I watch that last flight from Kabul Airport in Afghanistan take off, leaving U.S. citizens waving their passports locked behind a gate, my heart sank. I thought I'd never in my lifetime see America turn its back on its citizens. Then I began to think, praise God, because Lord, Jesus is coming soon. He's going to come in his own C-17. And he promised to come get us. And, And he is going to not leave one citizen of heaven behind. Amen. Because political promises may fail us, but he is the good shepherd. Amen. That's a hope that we can hold on to no matter what you're going through. He said, don't be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If I go away, I'll, I'll come back again for you. If it was not so, I wouldn't even mention it. But it's true, and you can hold fast to that promise. He's our daily sustenance as the good shepherd. He is our eternal sustenance as our eternal hope. And he is coming again for his sheep, for his people. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your son who came as a good shepherd, who who wasn't a hireling, but laid his life down for the sheep. Thank you, Lord, that this is his church, and Christ is the head over his church. Thank you for providing for us. Thank you for the eternal hope that we have in you. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here today, that, Lord, you would speak to their heart right now if they don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. My friend, if you're watching online or you're here in this place and you do not know Jesus, this is your day. I want to invite you to where you're seated in this auditorium or watching online to bow your head right now. And, to, and you, if you want to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you want to know, you want to have this everlasting hope, you want to know the Good Shepherd. The one who died for your sins. Then repeat this prayer after me. Simply say, Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God, and I believe you died for my sins. Forgive me. Come into my life. I receive you this day as my Lord and as my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for catching today's episode of the CWCCS podcast. If you haven't already, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And if this message hit home for you, share it with a friend. You can also support this ministry and these free teachings by visiting cwccs.org and click on Give. While you're there, you can also find the full archive of teachings from Pastor Al Pittman by clicking on the sermon's link. That's cwccs.org. This podcast is presented by Calvary Worship Center of Colorado Springs.